Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast, Episode 8. I'm Max Linsky, and I'm here with Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lammer, who were both just in Portland at something that sounded like it was super fun. We just came back from the uh, XOXO Festival. Evan gave a little talk there about what the Atavist is up to, showed off their new story, uh, which is an enhanced e-comic, is that correct? That's correct. Stowaway. 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 Joshua Newfeld and Tori Marlin. Available on the internet. Available on the internet at atavis.com. But the festival was uh, was the least boring conference I've ever been to, except for my talk. It's probably like, I'm probably at the low point of cynicism that I've ever been in my life coming from that conference. It was a, it was actually legitimately very inspiring. It was impossible to be cynical about. Absolutely. People cried on stage and in a very earnest way about how great it was. Yeah, and you hear a lot about like uh, you go like meet some people you know from the internet, and it's sort of like a letdown or weird. I, it was like I had the exact opposite experience there. I was like, I prefer these people I know on the internet to the people I know in real life. Max Linsky. <laughs> so EXO Festival go next year if yeah. they have it. Yeah, they, I didn't really say what they're going to have it. And Max, you were you were away this week too. I was yeah, I went down to Louisville for something called the Idea Festival, which was also really fun and not. Uh, nearly as focused on the internet which was nice it was like uh a couple of days where not everyone was talking and thinking about the internet and i got to drink a lot of bourbon and i went to churchill downs and that was cool awesome um i talked uh for this episode i talked to gideon lewis kraus uh came by my house played with my cat um talked about his most recent wired story which is about famous cats how, how did he feel about wilbo's potential i think uh he he said that wilbo had what it took are you going to put Wilbo into training, famous cat training? I, I just I don't want her to change is the thing. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, 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 th- I think you might see more from her. All right. Uh, here's Aaron talking to Gideon Lewis Krauss. Um, so I'm here with Gideon Lewis Krauss, journalist, book author, uh, men about town who we do know each other. We should disclaim yeah. we do know each other. Disclaimed. And Gideon recently had a piece in Wired, um, which we will get to. But I'm actually sort of interested in where you started off as a writer. Um, were you writing in high school? Has this always been an ambition for you? Uh, I always really enjoyed writing papers in high school, actually. Um, and then I got to college and... I always imagined that I was probably going to end up being an academic. I studied philosophy. And at a certain point, I started to realize that uh, the pleasure that I was getting out of philosophy was actually the pleasure that I was getting out of writing the papers. And that I never really thought of myself as somebody who liked writing qua writing before. Mm -hmm. And then when I was a junior, I became the editor of the Humor Magazine. 
which I had joined when I was a freshman just on a lark. They had thrown it under my door and I thought it was really funny and I went to a meeting and these were all the funniest, most interesting, smartest people that I knew in college. I never anticipated being involved in anything like that. Uh, and these were people that showed me um, for the first time that writing could could do different things for different audiences. I, th I think there's something oddly very pure about humor writing because you know exactly the reaction you are attempting to elicit. It's not something so murky as you're trying to move someone. It's You're just trying to make someone laugh, so you have to really think about the audience. And I was taking a bunch of history classes just out of interest, and when I was at the fall of my junior year, I just started editing the humor magazine with my friend Jacob, who's now a humor writer in L.A., and uh, I was taking this seminar on the 60s, and it was looking at the 60s. It was called, like, Thought, Protest, and Culture or something, and in the span of about a month, we read Slouching Towards Bethlehem, The Fire Next Time, and Armies of the Night, and I had never read anything like this, and it was the... I, I don't tend to be particularly romantic about um, life's pivots or um, how one finds one's way but this is the one moment in my life that I can look back and say this this genuinely was a kind of scales falling away moment um, where I thought these are people writing so intelligently about the world around them and that for me for so long I think I thought that the smartest kind of writing was the most abstract kind of writing which is why I'd been drawn to philosophy that you could somehow settle all of these questions in the, the most abstract way such that they would apply to all specifics and this was the first time that I saw like oh no this was extremely specific stuff that um, was so much more moving and so much more resonant and so much more interesting to me than, than the philosophy that I had been reading. And I thought every bit as smart and also funny and entertaining. That was the first time that I went out in pursuit of this kind of writing. And I, right around the same time somebody had given me, um, actually it was the summer before, um, that somebody had given me a supposedly fun thing. And that too had made such a big impression on me about about what intelligence was. I think I'd had a very narrow idea before then about what it meant to be smart and how you showed people you were smart and what you did with your intelligence. And here was, and to me, it was always something reclusive and here was something that was so smart and so engaged and also so funny. I don't think I'd ever thought before that you could be both really smart and really funny. And I thought like, this is the kind of thing I want to do. I think that that's not a uncommon starting point for people's interest in nonfiction probably also the hardest thing to yeah. bite off and try to do yourself. Um, really should not try to imitate David Foster Wallace <laughs> in your first attempts at published writing. What, what did you do from that prompt? Well, so what I, what I did from that prompt was muddle around for a while. And then I was graduating from college, and I went to college in California, and I always thought that I would just move right back to the East Coast. And at the time, I had a, a girlfriend who had a year left in school, and I thought, okay, well, I'll hang out out here for one more year. I don't really know what else I'm doing. And at, that was the fall after, or the summer after Eggers had moved McSweeney's from Brooklyn to San Francisco and had, in so doing, more or less liquidated his staff and was starting over. He was just about to open 826 Valencia. And I first met, Andrew had been an intern that summer and I had just missed him. And then I first met Andrew. This is... Uh, our mutual friend who is the uh, one of the editors of The Believer. So for those first couple of months, it was really just, I was more or less Andrew's intern. I mean, at a certain point, he started finding ways to, to pay me for do copy editing and little editorial jobs and some rewriting. Um, but by that 
fall, the believer had been going for six or eight months and um, I had an idea for a story which was not really an idea, although this has presaged a lot since I continue to not really have ideas. It was more just like, oh, here's this thing happening that maybe I could go hang out at. And it was a um, convention, an MLA convention, the English professors. So I went, first First, I went to Andrew and I said, I want to go try to do this. And Andrew was like, well, I have no power, you know, talk to Dave. So I went to Dave. It took me like a week to screw up the courage. And I went up to him and I said, you know, there's this thing happening in, in San Diego and it's English professors and Volman and blah, blah, blah. And Dave was like, well, have you ever done anything like this before? And I said, no. And he said, okay, well, you can go try. I'm not going to give you any money and I'm certainly not going to promise anything, but <laughs> you can go give it a shot. I can't physically stop you from going. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he said, and, and when you come back, if you want, you can you know, send me your notes or sit down and we can sit down and talk about it. And so I went and I came back and in like eight days I wrote 15,000 words or something and so I brought it to Dave and a week or two later he emailed me and he said come by the office and I came by and he said you know I only got six pages into this 40 page thing and he handed it back to me and basically every line had been crossed out in, in sharpie you turned in 40 pages to I, him? yeah <laughs> and and I thought oh well you know that was that my heart really sank and he said this is just your first chance go back and start here and he said basically imagine that you and I are taking a, a road trip together and you have three hours in which to just tell me, you have no notes, you're just going to tell me about what happened over the course of that weekend. He said, you know, I know you like Wallace, go home, pick up the state fair piece and read that, read that every morning and start writing and think, think about it that way. And so then I spent like the next month rewriting it and then Eli Horowitz, who was the longtime publisher of McSweeney's, looked at it, and Tom Bissell, with whom I'd just become friends, looked at it, and a bunch of people gave me, I mean, spent a couple of months working on it, gave it back to Dave, and then a couple of months later, he said, yeah, we're going to run this. And then um, I was shocked. I mean, I, ne I had never really expected it to work out. And then because it happened to be about an English, uh, con about a convention of people who have a who care about the way that they're represented and yeah. are articulate about it. It got attention on the web. And then from there I had one big clip to work with. So all of your pieces that I think I've seen have some element of the tourist in it, of you going to yeah. a place that has a thick local culture that you're not necessarily welcomed into. Yeah. Is that, um, is that something you consciously strive for in writing? I mean, I think that those are definitely the things that appeal to me. Uh-huh. Um, I, I think that more or less since Tom Wolfe, we, or, or since The New Journalists, so much of long form, so much of writing about the culture has become writing about subcultures. And so all of the things that made me want to start writing, and you know, it's, it's funny, it's, it's hard to tell after a while to what extent this stuff is innately dispositional and to what extent it's actually almost formally acquired that like, to what extent do I want to go and hang out at these places? And to what extent is it just that the pieces that I love and that, that made me want to be a writer are pieces where people go and hang out with subcultures and right. that's what I wanted to do. And so that's just what one does. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I'm sure it's both. Well, and the idea of the subculture has just gotten more and more granular as time has gone right, on right. where Tom Wolfe could, go hang out with some hippies right. uh, today you can go hang out with some you know hardcore straight edge right. ravers in right. Florida um, 
what do you bring to the table when you walk into a room with a bunch of people who are part of a culture that you don't really understand? That's a good question. I don't know what I bring to the table. I think what any outside observer who presents him or herself more or less quietly and more or less sympathetically, what you're going to get is people who see an opportunity to explain their attachment to this subculture in a, in a way that they don't often get an opportunity to. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially these days when it's, it's so easy just to occupy your, you know, like just to occupy one subculture, I mean, to have nothing to do with anything that doesn't directly interest you, that you don't necessarily get opportunities to then explain that, to feel like you can explain that simply and clearly to an outsider. And also, that's always a process by which you are then discovering what this means to you. Um, So, for example, I went and reported a story in July at the country's biggest rave they bill it oh, as. I'm glad, I'm glad you're I was going to yeah. ask you about this and I was like, oh, maybe he's not allowed to talk about no, this. No, it's, it's called the Electric Daisy Carnival and it's in Las Vegas. And this was not my story idea. This was an editor who had come to me and asked me to go. And so to me, I went there, you know, in the pith-helmeted way of what's, what's going on here ethnographically. These are... 300,000 more teenagers who have come from all over the country to go to this giant rave. And so I set out directly asking people, what is it about this that makes it a culture? And I got some some funny looks to that because I don't think any, a lot of these people I don't think had necessarily given thought to the question of like what exactly makes this a culture but then you end up getting interesting scenes and interesting experiences when when you invite someone to try to articulate how they see it as a culture now the, <laughs> I was the, just thinking about how that's also like a like are you a narc kind yeah. of question <laughs> what, well, what no, is it about this culture and where can I get some ecstasy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, people, people really did think that I was asking about drugs, I guess. This one guy, the guy who ended up sort of guiding me through the story, he kept saying, I, I couldn't tell whether he thought that I wanted him to get me drugs or if I wanted him to be on drugs or if I wanted him to talk about drugs. I could tell that he was really anxious about the question of drugs. And he was like, well, but I, I deliberately was not asking about it because it was so obvious to me that everyone around us was on drugs. I mean, you like when do you ever see like six people share like happily sharing one menthol cigarette unless they're all on ecstasy (laughs) and so he he was like you know people just like they get the drugs outside and they take the drugs before they come in so that they don't get caught on them and then we actually separated for a while and later on in the night we ran it or texted ran into each other again and he was like oh yeah I went to the VIP section and like somebody gave me drugs but I'm sorry I didn't save any for you and I was like it's okay I'm here as a reporter (laughs) I'm actually not interested in doing drugs Although maybe it would have been a better piece if I'd done drugs. But um, that that's the question of subcultures, I think. In your book, because um, I, I just read your book, and the part that was actually quite hard for me to read yeah. was the part where you're living in Berlin and being sort of an aimless writer. Yeah. And it was, um, I think, one of the first times that I've seen the culture that I emerged from depicted fairly nakedly <laughs> in nonfiction. Um, Interesting. Um, and that's probably the only, well, tell me, tell me a little bit about moving to Berlin and, and tell people sort of what, what that part of the book is about. Uh, so I, I've been living in San Francisco and having sort of a pleasant time of it and realized that at some point that I was going to drown in my pleasant time and that I was going to wake up 
at 40 and it was still going to be pleasant. Um, and I just felt, you know, like I hadn't done anything particularly interesting. And I went to Berlin to visit a friend of mine who'd been living there and had a, had a really fun week. And I spoke some German from college. And then somebody had told me that um, it's not that hard to get grants to go there. So I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll apply for a grant. And I have this line in the book where I say to my brother, I, who, with whom I'd been living at the time, I want to go to Berlin. A, like, nobody ever does anything there. But also, it's like the source of like all of this bohemian cultural ferment. And he was like, well, wait, so you want to go there to do nothing, but also to further your literary ambition? And I was like, yeah, exactly. Somehow <laughs> the going, the, somehow those things are going to work together. It's just going to happen one day. Together. Yeah. And I, I got there basically expecting Berlin to be more culturally interesting than it was. I mean, like, I ultimately had a great time in Berlin, and I'm, I'm very glad that I spent, I was there on and off f- over a period of about three and a half years. It was very fun, but... For the most part, I didn't really think that a disproportionate number of unusual cultural things were happening there. Right. And also, I have a, I, I mean, this thing only ever gets settled in retrospect. You can only look back and say retrospect, in retrospect and say, like, oh, look, there were all those great writers or artists or whatever. And, um, but there was far, I expected to get there and really want to write about contemporary Berlin. And there was just very little to write about. I, I wrote some stuff. I wrote some stuff for um, ta- for the former tablet, which was called Next Book at the time, and I had a, a great sympathetic editor there. So I wrote. I had never been that interested in writing about Jewish stuff, but in Berlin there were there were first of all they were paying me, and second of all there were some interesting things to do actually. Um, just about the idea of writing about Jewish. For stuff those listening on the radio, uh, Gideon is a Jew, <laughs> <laughs> and. So, but where, I mean, uh, what oh. was interesting to me in reading, I spent a month in um, Berlin this summer. Um, and I think I probably went in with um, lower expectations and also had a really fantastic time. And yeah. I think you um, pretty accurately described the world of people who come to Berlin looking for something, um, looking for art or uh, freedom yeah. or whatever it is people are looking for and generally don't find it. Yeah. But, um, it was harsh reading it. Like I was like, I was like, it was sort of like reading a feature feature length version of like a article criticizing hipsters or something like that. <laughs> but it was, it was also very emotional and very uh, empathetic. Um, but I had never, I've read a lot about a lot of cultures. I haven't spent a lot of time reading about people whose lives are fairly similar to my own. Yeah, that was really hard. I mean, that 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 might be the only time I ever do that. Um, and that is the part of the book that got re- rewritten the most times because I was writing about myself and people that I cared about, and I it's I. I didn't mean for it to be harsh, but I'm glad that you said that it seemed both harsh and empathetic because it went through all sorts of iterations where I think the first time that I wrote it, when I had just left Berlin, it was e- extremely jaded and harsh. Uh-huh. And I had I left fairly bitterly in that moment. Um, and that also had to do with things that were going on in my personal life. But um, then... After six months, I had really mellowed on the experience, about the experience, and when I went back to rewrite that maybe the next summer, uh, I wrote a much more starry-eyed version of that, I think. And like that wasn't quite right either, and then I think, grad- I-, I kept swinging between these two poles of, of 
overly sympathetic and overly harsh. And then what I, I tried to achieve some middle ground there by the end. Did you, while that stuff was happening, did you have an urge to write about, I mean, did you think about publishing about yourself? When, When did you turn that corner where you're like, it's okay to write about myself? Um, okay. So that requires a little bit of backstory probably. Yeah. Yeah. So so basically I'd been living in Berlin. I had been doing some writing, um, not as much as I'd hoped. I was having a really good time, but didn't feel like I was getting anywhere professionally. And then felt, you know, this classic, like overwhelmed by freedom. Um, and like, I play up the paralysis in the book, but I I did feel anxious a lot of the time. No, I mean, I think that's also as with, everything else about that section of the book, that's probably the experience of 90% of people <laughs> who try to move to uh, a bohemian right, European right. capital to write, which is, that isn't actually a particularly easy way to write right. or a particularly easy way to find something to write about. Yeah. So, so I, after a while, um, I had gone to visit Tom Bissell in Estonia and he said, uh, he drunkenly said that he was going to be walking across Spain the next summer, and just the idea of waking up every morning with some clear sense of purpose, even if it was the totally arbitrary one of just moving west, was really appealing to me. So I immediately agreed to do that. And then for a while, then that spring when I finally came down to making the plans, I thought, oh, well, I can't really justify this. But then I thought, well, I can't really justify this life as I'm living it now anyway. And then I, I thought, well, I could justify this if I could find a way to write about it. So I went to a bunch of places and people weren't interested for various reasons. Or, um, and then finally, Eggers said, well, you could do it for this issue of McSweeney's that we're doing that's going to be a newspaper. So then once I knew that I could be writing about it, it made me feel okay about going, even though I wasn't going to make any money. So we went on the Camino and then like a few days into it, I wrote this I figured if I'm not writing about this as I go along, I'm going to forget all this stuff. So I was taking notes during the day, and then I was turning those notes into handwritten narrative notes at night, and then three and then three or four days into it, I stopped and I typed it up as an email, and I thought, all right, all right I'll send this out to 15 of my friends. And a friend of mine wrote back right away, and he said, this is going to be a book. And I said, what are you talking about? This is going to be a book. It's just an email. And then by the end of the Camino, I had like 40,000 words, and I thought, oh, there's really something here. So then I was thinking about all right, this is going to be a book and it's going to be sort of about the um, the secularization of religious pilgrimage and what it means to travel with a sense of purpose and it's going to be kind of like half picaresque travelogue and half quasi-anthropological digression. But I really had, 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 did not have it in mind to write about myself. So then when I was writing up a book proposal, it ended up being all about Berlin and I'd never had any plans to write about Berlin and so then I was thinking oh this is just for the point of the book proposal this is where you get somebody to the point where they understand why you would go walk the Camino um but then when I sat but then as I'd written this proposal I thought oh well this is actually all part of the story in a way that to that point I hadn't realized that it was part of the story so then I thought oh my god I wish that I had taken better notes while I was living in Berlin and just before I was leaving Berlin in the f- for the first time in the fall of or in the winter in the December of 2009 I sat down and I just wrote up like 10 episodes that I could remember 10 anecdotes that to me had stuck in my mind as the most interesting anecdotes and they were about friends and I'd certainly never thought I would write about friends and then those 10 anecdotes ultimately went on to become the the Berlin chapter. It's funny because it, I feel like there's a cliche about people writing about themselves, but you're actually the only person I know who has extensively written about himself. 
but I never meant to. And I know a good number of writers. Yeah. Like, um, it's not quite as common as people might think. Yeah. What, as someone who has published a book about yourself, how, has that changed you as a writer now when you go and approach a new piece? First of all, I, I never really set out to write about myself. So I was a little bit blindsided by how personal the book got. I didn't, didn't mean for it to be. Second of all, I think that when you spend two years writing a book that's in the first person that is so personal, you develop, you obviously develop this narrative character. And, and in my book, the narrative, the narrator that I've created is in, in some ways me, but in some ways, in, you know, an exaggerated, caricatured version of me. Uh, a me that is, I like to think, a little vainer than I am. And a little like more a difficult. A little I, idler, I a little more yeah. difficult. <laughs> although, if you want to be difficult, you ask my brother. He'll say that I'm just as difficult as I seemed. Um, so, but you get comfortable with that character. So I realize that when I, sometimes when I sit down now in the like three or four pieces of longer form journalism that I've worked on since I finished the book, I, it's very easy for me just to re-summon that character. And I, now I have to think more about, well, does this character make sense here? Or like it, or do we need a different version of the character? Or like, what, what is the, what do we want from the narrator in this piece where I, I have, such a familiarity with the narrator of the book. Yeah. Well, I noticed, um, we'll, we'll get to it, the most recent piece you've done um, for Wired, but you also appear in that piece, and you appear as somewhat the same character. Like, you appear as someone who's uh, a little a little wisecracky and is willing to kind of, you know, get a get a last line in on someone. And I was... I was intrigued that you had carried that through into further pieces oh see that's funny i deliberately avoid giving myself the last line in fact one of one of that so i wonder if i messed that up there one the, of the the wisecracking wise isn't actually the right word at times you'll leave um you'll leave a conversation on you saying something sort of ambiguous and flat and not and, and the conversation sort of ends there it's like a documentary where the, the interview ends on a very sort of a discordant off note. So you'll, um, when interviewing, well, tell, tell us about the pieces, actually. Uh, that's, that's probably the good place to start. Uh, that's an interesting insight. I'd, I'd be curious to go back and look and see where those things end because one of the very, very most specific and most useful pieces of writing advice I ever got yeah. was, was Eggers himself who said to me once, when we were doing that first piece, never give yourself a punchline. It's true. Punchline is the wrong way to describe yeah. it. You let the punchline be a silence at some, at points. That's like someone says something and you just let the mic drop there yeah, yeah. on the oh, yeah. last, last statement. That's something you do in the book and you did do it in the piece when you're interviewing these Japanese cat owners. Often uh, you will wait till they say like the most sort of out there <laughs> yeah. shit and you'll be like, you can look it up online. Yeah. That's it. And it doesn't have you saying, Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank you. I'll c come, come again. Um, what, I mean, have you gotten pushback from people who've been in these stories? Your stories are often not, like, terribly flattering to the people in them. Oh, that's interesting. I actually felt very sympathetic to them. Like, I, I, like to me, that cat story is a very sympathetic story. I, 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 find, um, I find it very sympathetic, but it often leaves you... It, it leaves you with the impression that you are spending time with eccentrics, I guess. And, and some of these people, like, in the book also... Many of the people that you encounter on on the path, I want. I'm just interested in what um, 
like have you ever made contact back with any of these people oh well the book yeah for sure definitely i've had i got an incredibly emotional note from um this hungarian guy david that is in the camino section of my book and because there are parts where he he sort of he makes this anti-semitic joke and like it's a little bit awkward and he wrote he and i have stayed in touch over facebook and he wrote me a really long email about like what it felt like to be represented that way and how he at first he was heard and then he kind of understood the role that I played. I mean, it was a, a, a really thoughtful and very articulate note. This is, that's actually the perfect, perfect example of, of that kind of an appearance because you never, it never seems like you don't like Davi. No, I really liked him. Yeah. But at the same time, if, um, if you were truly a friend, you might not, uh, include his anti-Semitic comment in a book. Right. Right. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, but I guess the thing is that ultimately you have to own up to the fact that, you're writing a story for your purposes. I mean, so to me, like, one of, the, one of the big lessons of The Journalist and the Murderer, Janet Malcolm's classic book about the journalist-subject relationship, is that you really are telling your own story as the reporter. And that, so what I try to avoid is the kind of bad faith that goes into pretending like you're telling somebody else's story when you are telling your own story. So for me, something like that David exchange, like I really liked David and like I felt a a great warmth toward him. But, you know, for the purposes of the book, like he played a specific role that I needed in that story. Ultimately, I think it gets resolved. I mean, like it it ends up being this kind of lesson in forgiveness and, and, understanding for me and Tom and I, I don't at all think the portrayal is un, unsympathetic but also I mean it's not sentimental and like sure. I knew what I needed to happen there is that why you can't like in the case of going to the electric daisy carnival, carnival yeah. that, that one's hard for me to remember yeah. um is that why you can do ecstasy with someone who you're <laughs> following <laughs> because it would be sort of a swindle that you would be gaining their confidence to betray it um, I guess if I like brought the ecstasy to them, that might be that. Is the but, real uh, reason you didn't ecstasy because you couldn't get any ecstasy? With the <laughs> I, I, I feel like I had actually pretty explicit instructions on that count that said, we want ethnography. We don't want uh, ecstasy gonzo here. Um, <laughs> but also I think. Uh, I think you should take it as a compliment that they felt it necessary to give <laughs> you those instructions. <laughs> so... Well, all right. So, but to, to address this question more broadly, I guess, um, my, my best friend, who's a, a fiction writer, she once said to me that, um, that she saw a lot of the things that I was doing as ringing tenderness from absurdity. And I've actually always really, that wouldn't have occurred to me to put it that way, but that, that's always... Um, that does seem to me like one of the things that I that I like to do that in the case of the cats so the backstory is basically that I went to Japan to write about um, why the internet chose cats and starting from uh, Maru right. who's the well, most famous cat in the right. world so yeah. I was the, the whole thing started as I, I had pitched Bill again Bill Wasik who's now at, at Wired this I had briefly lost my mind and decided I wanted to profile the most famous cat on the internet. And he liked the idea and somehow uh, absurdly wired went for it. And then I couldn't get access to this cat. And I spent two months writing emails and having them translated and having this whole back and forth and trying to find this cat, which made up the first 13,000 words of the final piece, all of which got cut. And then, but then I did get in touch with these other cat owners. Um, who, who had had a million and a half YouTube views for their cats singing Jingle Bells. 
and I went to visit these these people and I just really liked the idea that I was going to the most absurd setting which was visiting these Japanese people in a ski chalet on top of a mountain in the middle of nowhere who had five enormous Norwegian forest cats and wringing from this completely absurd premise something that felt tender and sympathetic and meaningful and shared because I actually I really did like these people and like I got a sense in the end that they were just doing something that was trying to give them a sense of connection with the world um, and, you know, it was through these giant cats. Do you have such a, I mean, I would definitely descri- find that description of your writing very accurate. Do you have such a endless pool of empathy that you find empathy with almost all of the subjects? Because I haven't, you, you know, what would happen if you encountered true crazy people or, or true or terrible people who are trying to exploit the cats? This is, which a- is what, sort of what I thought it was going to happen <laughs> in the story. Because all these, a lot of these people in the story are, seem like they're making a living partially off of um, <laughs> pimping their cats on the internet. Well, that's a, that's a really good question, actually, because I think I often see this as a kind of um, uh, ethical practice, the going into reporting a story like this, because I think I am someone who can very easily be dismissive or even contemptuous, and... One of the things I like about reporting a story, particularly reporting a story that seems kind of counterintuitive, ultimately counterintuitively positive like this story, is because it gives me a chance to work through that and to be the more tender, sympathetic person that I would like to be in real life. Sure. Um, but th- that is a really good question about how I would uh, how I would handle writing about somebody or something that. I, I really did dislike. Um, yeah, I don't think... I'm trying to think if I've ever written about anybody I really didn't didn't like. No, I, I, I haven't, I don't think. It strikes me that going to Japan to report on cats, you know, you hear from reporters, oh, I just went and I didn't know what was going to happen and I just hoped something interesting would happen. When the subject of the story is nonverbal subject cats um you have a it seems even riskier in a certain way that um, it was extremely risky and were you worried that i mean all you have a language barrier yeah you have a uh species barrier what did you think you were going to get when you went to japan i had really no idea and it wasn't until i got there that i felt totally nauseated and was like, what have I gotten myself into? There's no way this story is going to come together. So then, and actually my appointments, so I, I ended up meeting two cats or two groups of cats. This, the people that I wrote about. And then a second, uh, a woman who had two internet cats, uh, in Tokyo, like a couple days later, which formed the second half of the piece. This piece was originally like 25,000 words long. So it's really only about a quarter of it that ended up in Wired, a little more than a quarter. And Put that on the internet. Well, <laughs> if there's anything, there's an audience for 25,000 words up. So, the, so I knew I had these two cat appointments, but actually neither of them had been set until I got to Japan. And then the way that the timing worked out... I ended up with about a week before I was going to the first cats. And so in that week, I was fretting so much about what I was doing there and how this was ever going to work. I thought, okay, well, I have to try to do as many cat-related things in Tokyo as I can. So first, I, I met with 
this this guy that I quote that I works at YouTube, that works at YouTube, and he and I, um, he and I had a, a couple of really nice conversations, and he had a lot of interesting things to say. Some YouTube, of it, YouTube highly complicit in the catacombs. <laughs> yes. And well, he was the one who had found me these cats in the first place. He had been the, the first one who was almost even dismissive of Maru and was like, "We have tons of other cats that are just as important in Japan." He's an American guy, and so I, I met with him a couple of times. And then my brother and I—these are all scenes that got cut from the piece. My brother and I went to a very high-end Tokyo cat store, uh, or like a pet store actually, but the pet store that sold a lot of expensive kittens. Um, the most expensive one of which was about $6,000 for a rag doll. What's, um, a, what's a rag doll? A rag doll is this kind of cat that was developed in California in the 60s that they're really big and they're also very limp. They're kind of like holding sandbags, but they're also, they have really nice personalities. Yeah. I like when you, um, when you came into my apartment, you, you really like, um, sized my cat up as like possible talent. You're like, this is a handsome cat. <laughs> Where did it go? Shout I out to Willoughby Whistle. They're over there napping. Um, so then, and then I spent, I went to a different cat cafe like every week uh, or every day for that week. Um, and some of that material ended up on Wired's website, but some of that also got cut. And I really thought, felt like I was losing my mind. Oh, so then I actually went also to, on my way to see the cats, I went to see the, um, the snow monkey hot spring where these snow monkeys hang out in this hot spring because I thought it might somehow work to talk about Is Jeff. this a, a natural or a tourist attraction? It, well, it's... Wait, why are monkeys hanging out in a hot spring? It, it's, it, the, see, this all is gone from the piece. This is why this piece has to appear. So in, in northern Japan, there's this place where, I guess about 100 years ago, they trained the... You know, there's big hot spring culture in Japan. People, they love yeah. hot springs in Japan. There's a lot of geo, geothermal activity. And they trained these... Um, monk these these mountain monkeys to go in these snow monkeys to go into the hot springs and sit there and hang out and bathe just by feeding them and then this became apparently this was like a really big tourist attraction even um, like 50 70 years ago every all the Japanese people knew about the hot springs snow monkey hot spring and it's just one place that does this. And it's funny because it they seems... They haven't been able to franchise this concept. <laughs> it, seems, it seems like such a ridiculous thing. Yeah. But, and it seems like the kind of thing that, that especially contemporary Japanese would um, be appalled by. But what's funny is that it's considered this old tourist destination that when we were... Well, I was there with my, my friend and translator, Rebecca, and when we were staying there, we were talking to these old guys and they were like... This used to be such a big deal when we were kids, and now the young people, they never come to Snow Monkey Hot Spring anymore, and they've lost touch with Japanese tradition because we were all about the Snow Monkey Hot Springs in the 50s. <laughs> so anyway, I went to Snow Monkey Hot Spring, and that was fascinating. But I thought that that was, I was just like, oh, I need material here, and maybe this will be about like the Japanese relation to animals. I don't even know what I was thinking. And But then we went to... Um, we went to meet the Musashis, these cat owners, and like from the minute that I walked into this, it, it took us forever to get to this ski chalet. It like wasn't on my friend's GPS. It was impossible to find. And when we finally got there and walked in and there were these 
six cats lying around. I thought this is this is going to be fine. These this are singing working cats out. To well, they're like chirping cats. That, that was something that I had no, trouble understanding. They don't actually make any sound. Like okay. they basically try to get them to meow, and then the guy records the meows and like chops them up. Because my cats make two sounds. Each one of them makes one sound. The bigger <laughs> one makes the higher sound, kind of like a Mike Tysony kind of way. Um, but. They've never done anything like singing. Well, this is, yeah, well, these cats don't actually really sing either. They've just been made to sing by this sound engineer. You know what's bullshit is how cat music has been totally overtaken by auto-tuning. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then the longer that I'm sitting there and the more that they're telling me about how they were on a Korean TV show and then they were on this Japanese TV show about um, that it's a Saturday night program that introduces viewers to exciting things going on on the internet, everything that, and then there was all, all this detail that got lost also about how they were used in these newspaper ads for a different cat movie that they weren't even in. And they sang the theme show to this TV show. And I'm sitting there and my friend and I keep exchanging glances like, this is absolutely incredible. And I'm writing as quickly as I can. And I got back to Tokyo really late at night and I texted Bill and I, or I, I don't, God knows even what time it was in California where he was. And I was like, this, this material is amazing. I got I'm your sure, cats. Sure. I woke him up. And then I woke up the next morning and sat for like eight hours and just wrote up like 12,000 words of this one meeting with these cats. And that was actually the bulk of what ended up in the piece. So then, so once I was there, I knew that this, that this had worked out. Um, but yes, it was really risky. <laughs> What's it like to write about like a YouTube phenomenon or something like that? Like one of the p things that I thought was interesting about your piece and is um, about the way that it's become difficult to write about right now is like you're citing these like metrics of like YouTube views yeah. to sort of demonstrate how insanely popular it is. And I, I become sort of numb to it. Right. I'm just like, uh, a million? Is that popular right, anymore? Right, right, it seems yeah. like a million is not even that popular. <laughs> I, guess I have friends who've had a million. You know, it's like <laughs> 10 million, 100 million. Like, how, how can you write about these phenomenons that are, by nature, internet experiences? Um, that's, you know, th that's a really good question. And actually, these I got a lot of interesting mail after the cat oh piece. Oh, my God. And these awesome. two girls, I got an email from these girls saying, um, we loved your cat's piece and actually we're doing this event this weekend where we, we have this group called blogologues or they, they're called lively productions, but they do this thing called blogologues where they perform, they recontextualize and perform verbatim internet material. And they were doing one a couple of weekends ago about cats. And unfortunately I was out of town, so I couldn't go, but I, I got together with them to chat about what they were doing. They were, we were talking about the people on YouTube who do, um, who have actors perform Yelp reviews. I don't know if you've seen this. It's pretty great, actually. That sounds and fantastic. It is. It's really good. And they were talking about other people they know who are doing things that involve sort of performing the internet. And so to me, like this, this the more internet that there is, the more, and like Bill Wasik has, has also written about this, the, the more desire for real world experiences there is. I mean, this is part of Bill's whole thing about um, flash mobs. And so to me, like this piece wasn't real. I mean, it was a, a piece about a phenomenon that obviously existed on the internet, but it was about the human community that right. existed behind that. The fuel. Yeah. Well, more than fuel. I mean, mm -hmm. like the, the, the desire for self-expression and part of the piece is about how in Japan, because of every because of Japanese culture and because of the anxieties people have about how they come across, for them, the internet is not about 
utter unrestricted self-promotion the way it is for us. It's really about restraint. And so one of the only ways that they have to express themselves is sort of by the proxy of things like animal videos. So for example, like so many Japanese people on Facebook have pictures of their pets as their profile pictures because Japanese people are very anxious about putting pictures of their faces on the internet. So and so many and Japanese people often would never have a blog that was like I just had an egg sandwich with Aaron and like so a lot of their which we actually happened actually happened um, but in Japan they um, like a lot of people have blogs about what their pets do because it's it, it's it's it seems innocuous nobody's going to criticize them but the more that you look at it the more you realize that so much of themselves is actually coming through here and that these really this is all about a kind of a particular kind of self-expression given a set of um, atmospheric or circumstantial constraints. So to me, this was about how, how the internet exists in people's lives. Right. And the, so I do want to do more pieces like that. And actually this piece about that's the electric, a, That's a really good de- description of, of what, what it is to cover something like that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, it seems like you have some knowledge of Japanese culture, but were you worried in doing this piece? And I would say this applies to almost a lot of these pieces you've done going in. Oh shit. I'm making this vast generalization about Japanese culture. And maybe I look like an asshole doing that. Well, so th- this actually, I realized in, in reporting the, the raver piece this summer that this actually has become a kind of program for me going into this. And I yeah. never, I never quite understood it, uh, in such structural terms until recently that I really go into reporting a piece feeling as though, I mean, I try to read as much as I can beforehand, but really feeling as though I know absolutely nothing about it. And then I'm going to pursue it like a complete, um, naive. And then I think I look at, um, the piece in, in three parts where the first part is kind of the like, fact finding part where I'm talking to as many people basically about whatever they feel like talking to me about. Um, or I'm, or I'm saying to them, like, what do you think of what's going on here? Like you tell me what's going on here. I have no idea. And then by the end of the first third of the reporting and often of the ultimate piece, I have come to some kind of like provisional, understanding what's going on like some hypothesis and that then I spend the next third of the reporting kind of reality testing that hypothesis and saying to people hey here's this idea that I have about what's going on here yeah you as a participant tell me what you think of this idea and then so then like for that middle third I get people's reactions to what my initial like fact finding has accomplished and then typically over the course of that part of the reporting and then of the writing, I find my original idea getting complicated and often undermined. And that then the end of it, the last bit of it, is taking this new idea again back to people and saying, like, what, what do you think of this new idea? And so to me, the reporting is really finding out, like, what can I say that won't make me seem stupid right. um, as with like using my advantages as an outsider who doesn't know what's going on, which means so often you like, you see different things, like you see some things more clearly and different things stand out to you. And then trying to get 
as many insider views as possible, filter them back through the outsider sensibility, and then like keep up that process so that you get to a point where you can you're saying something that the participants might not maybe have occurred to them, but it doesn't sound completely crazy to them. much to Gideon Lewis Krauss for coming in. His book is A Sense of Direction. Um, thanks to Lauren for ed- editing this episode. Thanks to my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff, um, who has a new Atavist book out. Check it out, atavist.com. And Max Linsky, who's got nothing new out. I'll be here next week. Thanks. When you need a bit of love, cause your man is out of town, that's the time. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.